Welcome to the sixth episode of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today I'm talking about The Strange Love of Molly Louvain from 1932, starring Anne Dvorak, directed by Michael Curtiz. Based on the play The Tinsel Girl by Maureen Dallas Watkins, the story shows audiences how women inherit a mother's bad reputation, which follows them around like a bad penny. Anne's character works behind the counter. Abandoned by a rich boyfriend, pregnant and alone, she runs off with a salesman who runs afoul of the law. Dvorak's character juggles four men in the picture, who mostly bring trouble. Few scenes are more thrilling than the one where Anne Dvorak sneaks by the sleeping ladies' room attendant, played by Louise Beavers, with a package tucked under her arm late one night. Anne's stealthy clandestine maneuvers are in service of a disguised identity. Many of the most memorable scenes in cinema are silent. We can add Anne in the ladies' room to the list, where the silence builds tension around the danger that awaits. She looks in the mirror and pulls at one of her dark brown curls, appraising. At first, she looks full of confidence as she readies herself to say goodbye to her brunette tresses. But then Anne's face clouds and registers a void. Her face reveals so many grim expressions, resignation, despair, a hopelessness. The viewers wonder how someone so young can look so world-weary. She's run out of chances. Anne's Molly Louvain pours bottles of peroxide in the sink. Viewers can see some bleaching powder on the shelf next to him. It's like she wishes she could make the past fade out more than the color of her hair. Then the scene cuts to when she leaves the powder room, her hair perfectly curled in platinum locks, just as Louise's alarm bell rings. The alarm breaks the silence of a formerly hushed scene. Anne thanks her, leaves a tip, and walks out. Anne's so great in this scene. She's the fugitive long before David Jansen played one on television. She reminds viewers of the transformative power of a hair makeover, how changing color can make you feel like a brand new woman. Yet at the same time, this isn't a glamorous makeover or a cause for celebration. Wanted by the law, she seeks to evade capture with the simplest surefire means. Her newly blonde hair makes her seem hard-boiled and desperate. Anne looks cornered and reckless, and it's electrifying. Reporters print stories of Molly's reputation for being a gang leader, a promotion bestowed from Nick's hospital bed. Molly learns men won't protect you. They just shift the blame to save their own hide. She's in the middle of a firestorm that's normally reserved for male characters on screen. Anne's in the driver's seat and calls all the shots while young Jimmy's along for the ride, as the gun mole usually is in the gangster picture. To step back to when the film opens, Molly's society lover tells her that she's invited to his birthday party that evening, where he intends to place her right next to his mother at the dinner table, a woman whom Molly has never met. He's rich and she's poor. Molly tells the rich boy that her own mother had left when she was only a young girl and left her but three pieces of advice. To never let anyone put starch in your drawers, to put glycerin on your hands, and never forget to be a lady. Everyone else in town thinks that a woman who runs off with another man and leaves her daughter is a tramp. They still think that today. 
It doesn't leave her much to go on. Laundry, beauty tips, and a vague title leave much to be desired for meaningful life lessons. The town folk think her mother was no good, and that bad reputation transfers to Molly. Molly believes he'll smooth things over with his mother and gets ready for the big night. Anne demonstrates all the things that women must do to prepare for a date at great expense and how things can go wrong. Many women watching have the same drawer of stockings full of ladders. She can't find one decent pair. And she's broke from splashing out for a new frock, laced with fur trim around a capelet. Erin Boyd Jimmy, played by Richard Cromwell, delivers the dress and offers to spring for a pair of hose. Instead of accepting, she rings the salesman Nick Grant, played by Leslie Fenton, and takes him up on his earlier offer to have three pair gratis. Why pay for something a man will give you, which serves as the easiest economic equation many women use to make ends meet. Nick wants something in return. Molly assures him that she'll stop by his room to collect the other two pair of stockings. And then, as soon as she closes the door, she says brightly, you'll grow a beard waiting. He heard the comment and asks through the door to clarify what she said. Quick as a flash, she corrects it. I said, you're a dear for waiting. Sassmouth dames never hesitate with a fitting retort to keep a man at arm's length. When Molly Louvain arrives at the big house on the hill, the butler has bad news. The family left unexpectedly for New York. The rich boy left her a limp kiss-off note that closes sincerest regrets, which has never sounded less sincere. Broke, dejected, she walks all the way home in her new frock and high heels. Molly does what many women do, sing her blues away, get tipsy, and fall into the arms of another man. When she says, and not for the first time, I hate this town, the traveling salesman Nick Grant quips, I know why you hate it, the gin here is putrid. The film underscores how unobservant men are about what happens to women and their interior emotions. All he cares about is that she's receptive to his advances. He's as transparent as the silk stockings he peddles. Director Michael Curtiz signals time's passage through a novel montage featuring various state license plates with a date change. Three years later, we see that Molly has a daughter, not from Nick, but from the rich boy. The little girl, Anne Marie, played by Jackie Lynn Dufton, has a convincing fit to keep Molly from leaving her behind with a minder once again. Molly's decided she's had enough of Nick and plans to get sorted. On her own, she takes work as a taxi dancer. Through conversation we hear between a dancer and patron, viewers gather the venue as a gateway for sex work and being kept by men. Molly meets Jimmy again. He's working his way through university, but convinces her to run off with him. When they get tangled up with Nick and one of his heists gone wrong, Molly guns the engine and drives off with police in pursuit. Tell me you're not delighted when she says to Jimmy, first thing we got to do is lose these cops. Then she careens about the streets, leading patrol cars in a massive chase. Headlines announce, Brunette Beauty Escapes. Molly knows she has no access to things like truth or justice. It doesn't matter if she's innocent. She's guilty by association. She ran around with a stick-up man, so she's an accomplice. That's why she doesn't think twice about fleeing the scene when Nick shoots a cop. Molly Louvain has been judged all her life for things she didn't do. She's not about to catch a break now. After she's a bleach blonde, Molly and Jimmy pretend to be married and take a room in a boarding house. Enter Lee Tracy, clad in a bathrobe. 
as he rushes in to answer the phone in their room. He plays a reporter who can't recognize the hot story he's following stands right in front of him. The fella is smooth, though. He's a strange leading man. If you look at him, he shouldn't be attractive. His features seem rubbery and lack definition. His nasally high-pitched voice veers towards cartoonish. He could be the illustration for the 90-pound weakling in a broadsheet advertisement of the era. His chest looks concave. He has a weak chin. He doesn't even wear nice clothes like, say, William Powell did to enhance his attractiveness. And yet he pulls it all together with charm and panache. Nobody else looks or sounds like him. Somehow you know why Molly Louvain loses the plot over him. He makes himself desirable. Lee Tracy happens to be the master of the neck rub. In the 1930s, a standard move for actors had them rub the back of their neck to signal that they were lost in thought, perplexed, flummoxed, or banjaxed. Wiry Lee Tracy uses the move to full effect. He draws us in with a neck rub so that we can't wait to see what he'll do next. He's also a gag man with props, like a candlestick telephone, the style that dials at the base, has a mouthpiece up top, and a separate earpiece hung at the side. Tracy flings the earpiece up in the air before he catches it and puts it to his ear. For a newspaper man, it's a move as smooth as a gunslinger twirling his revolver. His trademark pinch nose, right closes most of his phone conversations. Tracy's Scotty Cornell doesn't waste any time sizing up Molly. When he asks her name, she says, it's Babe. He smirks and says he knew it was that or Queenie. Scotty knows all about women, and he calls Molly a tinsel girl, which means she looks good on a Christmas tree, but won't stand up in the rain. Fortunately, in a woman's picture, any man who claims to know all about women soon has his hat handed to him. Later, Tracy's newspaper man tells her she must choose between being respectable and marrying Jimmy or running off to Paris with him as he goes to write the great American novel. He assures her it'll be fun and beautiful for a few months until he eventually gives her a dirty deal. He makes it a promise. But Molly makes a choice that transcends the romantic options, which makes this film special. The film elevates a boilerplate romantic triangle so that Molly Levain ducks the option of choice between two men. Instead, the plot gives viewers something we don't see enough of even in woman's pictures. Molly forgives her mother. She starts out angry and traumatized. At one point, she vows of her mother, I never want to see her again except in a hot place. From hellfire to forgiveness is a long journey that few women can withstand. Most often in pictures, we see clashes between mother and daughter, whether with a nightmare mama like Mrs. Vale and now Voyager, or a daughter who should have been fed to the alligators like Vita and Mildred Pierce. By contrast, in The Strange Love of Molly Louvain, our heroine recognizes how society pressures women into making rash decisions because of petty minds and morals. When you are burdened with a label like Tramp, the only thing many women can do is run away. Molly begins to understand how one bad move can haunt you. Initially, though, Molly prepares to meet Scotty at the train station, even though he called her a tramp, said she had the walk of a tramp, and predicted that he would do her wrong. But then she catches the latest headlines about her daughter being gravely ill and asking for her mother. 
An epiphany occurs when she realizes that she resembles her mother in opting to leave her daughter for hot sex with Lee Tracy and a Parisian adventure. She can't bear to repeat her mother's desertion. Molly's compassion for her own mother lends her the strength to do the right thing with little Anne-Marie. Molly lets go of her childhood pain and replaces it with empathy. Instead of running away, she takes responsibility and turns herself in so she can comfort her daughter. Earlier, Molly had said of herself, I'm a pretty bad egg. By the end, she's noble and brave. Despite a room full of inept cops who badger her for a tabloid-worthy confession of gangland cliches, Molly sticks to the truth. Scotty Cornell had sneered at the Mother McCree angle that he said always worked and never wore thin selling newspapers, but his bitter cynicism belies his belief in the sentiment. Once he realizes Molly sacrificed her own freedom when she fell for his deliberate ploy to lure her in with the headlines about her sick child, he has an abrupt change of heart. As a tinsel girl, he'd have thrown her over in three months, but now as a mother demanding to see her baby, no matter what the consequences, he says he'll fight for her every day and he will never leave her. If it sounds sappy, it isn't one bit on screen. Scotty values her difficult choice to do the right thing rather than the easy thing or the fun thing. He confesses to Molly, the man who knew all about women just learned what it's all about. Oftentimes in woman's pictures, the bitter cynic eventually restores to idealist. The play was written by Maureen Dallas Watkins, a journalist, playwright, and screenwriter. Most famous for her original play, Chicago, written in 1927, which was inspired by a real-life court case. She later adapted it for the screen with Ginger Rogers as Roxy Hart, and she also wrote a string of classic woman's pictures. She wrote No Man of Her Own in 1932, the only film Lombard and Gable made together. Also, professional sweetheart, libeled lady, and I love you again. She also contributed to the script for The Story of Temple Drake. Watkins' scripts calls to mind Lenore Coffey's memoir. Coffey began writing in Hollywood in 1919 and continued until 1969. In her memoir, she recalled a meeting with Irving Thalberg, where he scoffed about a writer's importance, saying something along the lines of, what's the big deal? It's just putting down one word after another. Lenore Coffey issued a sharp correction, pardon me, Mr. Thalberg, the right word after another. Watkins' play boasts all the right words. Characters reveal themselves in just a few lines. It has punchy colloquialisms and expert pacing. In his memoir, Jack Warner recalls watching a film Michael Curtiz made in Budapest. He didn't think the movie was especially good, but, it did, but he did take notice of original shots and camera work the director used. He said that Curtiz engineered the first glycerin dissolve shot he ever saw. Curtiz, as director, accepted a contract of Warner's in 1926. He was adept at creating depth and texture to shots that might have appeared too stagey otherwise. In one scene, when Molly and Scotty meet, he inserts a little bit of business that blends camera shots from the tenement flat, where Scotty yells down to a shopkeeper on the street who has a freestanding radio on sidewalk display and requests music. It adds a sense of intimacy and density within a population where people are connected in close quarters, whether they like it or not. 
Anne's wardrobe features carefully tailored skirt suits that emphasize Molly's bid for social mobility. The smallest embellishments go a long way for maximum effect. A little ruffle here, a chevron-striped dicky there, a geometric print frock, and Anne's simple little jumper with a design that skips a pattern when she meets Leslie Fenton, when he tells her she's the only piece of Class A scenery in the town. It's worth noting that when Howard Hawks sold Anne's contract to Warner's, when she was hot off the smash hit Scarface, he sold it for more than he did Jean Harlow's to MGM. That's how convinced he was of her star potential. After Anne's first starring vehicle for Warner's as Molly Louvain, she went on to experience a rocky relationship with the studio. Once Anne met Leslie Fenton in the, this production, she couldn't get enough of him. They eloped after the production ended. They traveled in Europe with Anne put, putting off the studio and refusing to report for work. Like many other actors, she chafed against the studio's ties. While Jack Warner negotiated demands from male stars like James Cagney, he was reluctant to engage women who rankled against the system. Anne Dvorak balked at the ironclad studio contract long before Betty Davis or Olivia de Havilland, who eventually broke studio control over an actor's career. Anne was one of the best actors of her own or any era. You can watch her in Scarface online at dailymotion.com. Also look for Three on a Match, Heat Lightning, Girls of the Road, The Walls of Jericho, and as I mentioned in my first podcast episode, her short but standout role in A Life of Her Own. I'll leave you now with an excerpt from Christina Rice's excellent biography, Anne Dvorak, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel. Anne's second film with Warner Brothers finally went into production the first week of February, and the title was changed from the catchy-sounding Tinsel Girl to the head-scratching The Strange Love of Molly Louvain. Directed by Michael Curtiz, The Strange Love of Molly Louvain is a classic pre-code, with Dvorak playing a girl from the wrong side of the tracks, trying to make good. Her rich boyfriend gives her the big brush off, leaving her brokenhearted with, and pregnant with an illegitimate child, who, as a toddler, inexplicably speaks with a British accent. In defeat, she hooks up with a small-time hood who mixes her up in a life of petty crime and pushes her into the arms of a wisecracking newspaper reporter played by Lee Tracy. Though not the strongest of pre-code films, Molly Louvain has the obligatory lingerie shots, premarital sex, drunkenness, crime, and most important, a strong and interesting female lead character, albeit in a bad blonde wig. And more than holds her own with Lee Tracy, and she dominates her scenes with Richard Cromwell, who plays a sniveling bellhop who has a crush on her. This film would be one of the few times Anne had the opportunity to play the central character, and it contains one of the most memorable scenes of her career. After being jilted, Molly drowns her sorrows in the hotel room of the small-time crook, played by Leslie Fenton, who has been making advances toward her. She sits at the piano with Fenton, morose, drunk, and performing a scat version of the song Penthouse Serenade. As in Scarface, Dvorak is actually playing the piano and singing, and the audience gets a tiny taste of what an all-around talent she really was. As she guzzles down champagne and alternates between breaking down and reveling in her drunkenness, the audience can empathize with her disappointment as well as the dread road she's about to go down. The scene ends with Anne launching into one of her own compositions, a ditty called Gold Digger Lady 
which Warner Brothers had to get official permission from Dvorak to use in the final cut. The Production Code Administration had some objections to the amount of skin visible in Anne's disrobing scenes early in the film, and cautioned against some of the double entendres in the exchanges between Dvorak and Tracy. But overall, The Strange Love of Molly Louvain seems to have reached the theaters with only minimal cuts. For a photo shoot to promote the film, studio photographer Elmer Fryer posed Anne in a skimpy dress with a champagne glass that must have been full of the real stuff. The resulting images are striking, with Anne appearing more seductive and uninhibited than she would in any other photos taking during the course of her career. The photos from the session, in which Anne looks more than a bit tipsy, are the embodiment of the pre-code female. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I'm talking about Susan Hayward and My Foolish Heart from 1949. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun to tan me, palms to fall.